Hello and welcome to the 35th episode of Across the Isle. I'm Philip Teal and I'm joined in the studio, as always, by my friend and fellow prize winner, Carla Donnelly. Hey. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations to you too. <sighs> nice, and Ron 3. Nice award. Carla shared congratulations on our big win in the arts and entertainment category of the Australian Podcast Awards. What a surreal, sparkly, fabulous and heartening night it was. All the more sparkling for you, my dear, in your blue sequin tuxedo jacket. Yes, they took the sparkle literally. (laughs) Excitingly, we're also joined in the studio by a special guest who will join us at intermission. More about that soon. But yeah, we want to thank our producer, Ron, and all our friends and supporters for their role in this achievement, including you, dear listener. And in related news... It's time for us to pitch our fourth season. We would dearly love to maintain and expand this project into a fourth year, and we'd love your participation. We're seeking funding to critically engage in another year's worth of culture and to bring you a well-produced and thought-provoking podcast each and every month. Right now, we're asking you to join a community of like-minded subscribers who pay for the pleasure of hearing this show. These generous people already get top-secret communiques about the shows we're going to cover and regular polished correspondence about events and productions that we recommend. Better still, we've been permitted to raise funds through the Australian Cultural Fund. The good news for you, dear Australian listeners, is that your generous tip to our show is fully tax-deductible. That's right. It's a choice between transport infrastructure and arts (laughs) criticism. (laughs) Uh, And we endorse your choice to redirect your hard-earned cash our way. See our social medias for details. And thank you so much in advance for your support. We see you, love you, and thank you from the bottom of our hearts. That said, let's head to the theatre. Finally. Jesus. At last. (laughs) Lights. In this episode, we're going to consider a couple of updates, some revisiting of the past, some adaptations and some listenings to past voices. We're going to hear the legacy of Simone de Beauvoir in Destroyed at 45 Downstairs. Then we'll head downstairs again to Fairfax Theatre at the Art Centre for the House of Bernarda Alba, produced by Melbourne Theatre Company. Our trip to this show was sponsored by Julien Lair, a dear friend and lover of the podcast. He selected the production on our behalf as part of our Season 3 crowdfunding campaign, Merci Juju. So during this episode's intermission, we're going to be hanging out with Jasmine Mosley, who is our very special intermission guest. So much exciting business, Carla! But let's dive into Destroyed. Simone de Beauvoir was a groundbreaking French feminist who caused seismic shifts in attitude and inspired a whole generation of women to strive for personal freedom and fulfilment. Destroyed celebrates de Beauvoir's singular brilliance and explodes tensions and pressure points created by leading a daring and unconventional life. Using only de Beauvoir's words, it scrutinises with searing intelligence, humour and pathos what it means to love, the nature of romance and our common fate. It opens the window on a view of where feminism began with a capital F Mm -hmm. and questions by implication how far have we really come. So that's the intro 
by the producers of the production, so Gillian Murray and Suzanne Chandy. Suzanne is actually a legend in the theatre scene, having had her own theatre company in the 70s, I think, Mm. in Melbourne. It's a history that I want to explore a little bit more. Simone de Beauvoir has a particular resonance with me, I guess, because I have the same birthday. And I've been quite obsessed with her for a long time. I knew about her before I was really a feminist in completion. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I, I think I was... Or everyone's always born a feminist, I think, well, most people. But um, I didn't even read her readings as someone on a feminist quest. I see. I read her readings as someone who was had the same birthday as me and I was incredibly intrigued by this woman. And I particularly came to her in terms of existentialism rather than mm-hmm. feminism because um, her and her husband, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, were the founders of existentialism. So... That's how I came to her work and that's why I chose this show, another one-woman show. Yep. <laughs> which is so weird. Keep them coming. But maybe, you know, she doth protest too much. Like maybe I do secretly love one-people <laughs> shows and I'm trying to find my path there. So this was an incredibly beautiful show composed of uh, snippets from her fictional and non-fictional work, primarily s- s- loosely based on a aging timeline, though centred around middle age to beginning of elderly life. And that's, I think, really where the the real meat of life comes from, doesn't it? It's not really when you're looking ahead, it's when you're looking behind. And there's really a heartbreaking sentiment here in terms of, you know, so the person who was responsible for bringing the second sex into the world, the you know, the most seminal feminist text and hearing her own words about trying to relate her life to her academic mind Mm. and the way that she feels life should be. And I think that is still a struggle for feminists today Mm -hmm. as, you know, we have an academic or an intellectual or even a spiritual understanding of how we should be all equal and how that creates a tension against real life. Mm. But I found that particularly heartbreaking to hear those words coming from her, how she tried to rationalise being in love with a man who um, refused to be monogamous to her and her trying to wrestle with that, even though she wasn't sure that it was monogamy that she wanted and how that rubbed up against her feminism and her parentage. What did you think of this? It's so um, helpful for me to be listening to you because you make me realise what I had only started sensing, which is that that's exactly what this play offers us. It's a kind of humanising of a legend. You know, Mm. Simone de Beauvoir resonates as a name, as a concept, as the left bank of Paris, you know, as Café Life, as Mm. Bohemia. And here she is being daily, being embodied. Um, And the casting was just perfect. I mean, Gillian Murray is at that pitch-perfect moment to be telling this particular story Mm. when she um, says lines like, I had a shattering revelation, time goes by. (laughs) You know, she she has the body and the gravitas to sort of bring that. And what a bravura performance. I mean, speaking of one-woman shows, it means you have to remember everything and talk for so long and then somebody's phone rings and somebody walks out (laughs) dramatically. Oh, my God. (laughs) And you've got to just handle that and be Simone. Yeah. It's almost like a meditative practice. It well, was Simone would have gone on. Sure. Two men walking out of her performance sure. would not have rattled her. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And what I had noted down already was that there was something that I brought to the production about what I wanted from it that was sort of against the grain of what was being delivered. So it's Mm. taken some time to process the show and see what I was given at this show. Yeah, that's probably because I actually would have superficially preferred. Um, more hero worship. You know, I wanted Simone, 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 just like with other um, 20th century figures. I'm thinking of Virginia Woolf, for example. It's always a bit problematic to me to have her humanised because her iconic status matters to me as well. And this was against iconography. You know, it was about something that feels past and feels like it once was present. And in fact, I thought that some of the moments from the script were almost unbearably kind of twee. I mean, here is Simone de Beauvoir <laughs> talking about buying scales and going on a diet. And mm. I'm like, no, Simone, stay statuesque, you know, stay heroic, stay a surname. But talking with you now and reflecting on the show, I realise, well, what, what I'm learning through this production is about the humanity of this person and the, the, the emotional truth for this person. Well, it's people that create... It's still always humans that create mm-hmm. these things. And I'm so interested and glad that you said that because I think that that would be the thing that most of the people that came to see that show would have as an icon image mm-hmm. in their mind, a titanium woman and almost like an idol in terms of the expectation that their life would be unswervingly ideological mm-hmm. in terms of what they had produced into the world. But that's that's the irony of these sorts of things is because she was so fragile, because she was so human, because she was so emotional and felt things so deeply that she was able to question life in that way and produce the work that she did. Fascinating. I mean, it, it is a testament to her strength that she was able to endure writing about these things mm-hmm. and being in that position mm-hmm. very unflinchingly you know writing the script of her life mm. and you know being in second place sure. she you know she was second place to Jean-Paul Sartre in her <laughs> class in university always being second place but she really you know she made lemonade and mm. birthed something into the world that shaped shaped the world, Mm. but was still not without feminine scruples. Indeed. And (laughs) for lack of a better term. Well, and feminine in that way that is about a century old too. Mm. You know, so some of the stuff that I was hearing as a little bit play school was in a way just aged, right? So these people, when you make them into legends and heroes – take on a kind of timelessness, and so their oldness surprises you or us, right? So little phrases when she would say things like, you haven't changed a whisker. I mean, of course, this is all translation as well from Mm. the French. Nonetheless, again, like Virginia Woolf, like these people don't sound like contemporary feminists because they're not contemporary. Mm. And, and, I mean, I'm just having so many basic realisations. They're being translated from their native languages, which I'm sure loses... Yeah. Some sort of, you know, panache or dexterity. Yeah, but I love your idea about how it is the fact of the humanity of someone like this, including their gender and their historical context and their movement within that context that allows for them to ultimately become these heroic figures who sort of shape the politics and identity of so many others. Well, she is Jeanne d'Arc. She Mm -hmm. is 
rally. She's a hundred years ahead of her time, mm-hmm. existing in a space that cannot accommodate her. Yeah, she spends every day of her life trying to diminish herself to live within a sphere that can contain her. And of course, she was filled with rage. Mm-hmm. And I find that she was able to survive and thrive to be the miracle. Yeah, you know, and to just continue to produce work and put it out into the world. I think this was actually specifically poignant because not only, of course, of women of Gillian and Susan's age that she would be a prolific presence Mm -hmm. in terms of their second wave probably feminist education. Later in Simone de Beauvoir's life, she was very passionate about writing about the elderly. Mm. So she saw them as then again the second-class citizens of the world and most of her work in her later life was about the treatment of the elderly by society. So I think taking this work from this period of her life of reflection not only has that poignancy that we have as humans when we're looking behind but also was a really great reflection of... Where her work sits, her her work sits in, in the marginalised, mm. right? It ended up being about feminism because it was about her and her life and that period of time, but really her work is about the marginalised and mm-hmm. I think that is what came through in this performance mm. for me. Mm. I'm so glad to know who you are, Carla. <laughs> Welcome back, Simone. <laughs> Thank you. It's intermission. Oh, look, it's Jasmine Mosley. Jazzy. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Can it's we great. get you a drink? Oh, yes, please. What would you like? A Bellini? Oh, that's quite elegant. I want something left bank themed, like bank. really oh. short espresso. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and Ristretto, not too tasty. A Paris yeah. coffee. <laughs> mm. <Okay. laughs> All right, done. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad I've run into you. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> we need to hear everything. Yes. Wow. What's going on in Jazzland? Well, there's a lot. I've I've been around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you've it's been around the way, back. girl. Mm. You've been travelling as always in your glamorous ballet life. I have. I have. How was the Sydney season? Sydney was fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, unseasonably warm. Mm. Oh, like very sunny and lovely. And it was, yeah, it was a long time up there, but very busy, like lots of wonderful things going on. One of my favourite festivals, the Head On Photo Festival. Was oh, on. wow, I haven't heard of it. Tell me uh, about it. It's incredible. It's largely, well, I think it's almost all free and it's all over the city and in many different places, Paddington Town Hall, um, outside the Royal Botanic Gardens. And is it portrait? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. There Nature, are some prizes. anything? Yeah, there's some. So all forms? All forms. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. There's even this wonderful, um, in Paddington, there's a reservoir gardens. So it's sort of this sunken garden and they have installations in there. So that was really cool. Wow. <laughs> but I love it and I go every year because I'm always there at that time of year. Who knew? Sydney. Love. <laughs> now you know. Oh. <laughs> Have you been at the theatre or the cinema? Well, I, as always, I'm very um, omnivorous. Oh, good. Oh, yes. Mm. We like that. Feed me. I like it. Yes. <laughs> Feed me. Mm-hmm. Feed my eyes and my ears. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm. I guess I always tend to lean towards the visual arts somehow. Mm-hmm. So, after Sydney, I went to Canberra. Mm. Okay. And um, I experienced some virtual reality. Whoa. Yeah. I hate it. So, <laughs> so apparently, it, apparently it really affects women a lot more than men. Really? Yeah, they've 
because I'm studying psychology, we're really sort of honing in on what kind of gender differentials there are in any way. And there's very, extremely very little. But they have found in virtual reality, yeah, women get really motion sickness much more than men. So how did it, oh. how did it affect you? <laughs> well, I'm quite good with that. But okay. I, I was with my mum and it was her first virtual reality experience. Wow. She gets a bit of vertigo. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were some moments where, you know, it was... What do they call those things you put on your eyes? You They're just that. goggles, aren't goggles they? Goggles on, goggles off, goggles on. <laughs> oh, Jazz, put this one on. Um, but it was, I loved it. It was like going back into a 90s. Um, this particular installation had all these different um, Is this National Gallery? Yes, okay. National Gallery of Australia. Uh-huh. Mm, I love it there. Mm, <laughs> I just so love prestigious. It. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm, mm, so much going on. It feels like an extension of the High Court, you know. Mm. It's just sort of all very federal. <laughs> I just feel so flamboyant when I'm in Canberra. Well, yeah, and it's very democratic. There's mm-hmm. a lot there. It's, yeah. it's idealistic. I mean, mm. Burley Griffin, mm. you know, visionary visionary stuff is going on. Ah, mm. And witchcraft, but mentioned. we can talk about that at <laughs> another mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this was, this was really interesting. This was um, virtual reality experience was something called Terminus, um, which was an artwork by Jess Johnson and Simon Ward. And it was all very... Um, it had that 90s graphic computer feel, mm. quite abstract, and so you feel like you're on a little bit of a roller coaster inside a, a very abstract world with lots of pink, sort of weird bodies flying mm. around you and worms. Great. <laughs> <laughs> VR. Could you interact with it, or you just kind of, it was more like a ride? No, or? yes, you, you had to stand on, on a thing and look at a thing, mm. and okay. that started it, and then something would flip and you'd be in there. Oh. And things would happen, you know, and um, walkways would sink beneath you and above oh you. Oh, my God, that sounds scary. <laughs> I don't like want to do it. It's a prisoner of war experience. <laughs> well, I Goggles on. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, uh, I went, uh, when I arrived back in Melbourne last week, I went to Dr. Sketchy's anti-art school in oh, Northcote. Yeah. Cool. And sketched this amazing comic, a stripper comic called Chase Paradise. Is that a is that a man or a woman or a non-binary uh, a, person? Oh, a woman. Okay. Um, but you know, a really fabulous wit and attitude on stage, and mm. that was super fun. You know, in the flesh experience mm. rather than virtual, literal, but a well. different world. <laughs> a different world. You are so from the future. <laughs> I look forward to evolving into where you're at right now. I love the combination of those two <laughs> things because I think nudity and sex is really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I think, like, you should really have a sense of humour about it. Everyone takes all this stuff way too seriously. So I love that nexus, you know. Nudity in the theatre is always presented deadpan, isn't I it? I know. It's so earnest. I knew when I found, like, the one with my partner when I was, like, laughing during sex and he's like, ha, ha, ha. You know? <laughs> it is. It's great. I mean, it's funny sometimes. Oh, can so I just funny. Can I just briefly mention going down at Malthouse because I'm thinking Speaking about of. funny nudity. <laughs> funny nudity. Really? It's got funny it was nudity. Fu- it had funny nudity. Oh, good. And funny sex and fun sex and silly sex. And we take it all yeah, yeah, too yeah. seriously. Totally. Lighten up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Just enjoy it. I mean, yeah. I'm having a Bellini. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I've had too many. My, my <laughs> ristretto was done minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any, um, give us a hot tip of, I don't know, something. Tell us something, tell us one more thing amazing before we have to go in. 
Oh, something coming soon or something. Oh no, that's for later. coming soon. We'll that's be, coming let's soon. Bring her okay, back. yeah. Let's. All right. Okay. Oh, we've got to go anyway. So oh, theatre oh. time. <laughs> I'm just going to have another Bellini. Okay. I'll see you later. <laughs> Okay, it's time for The House of Bernarda Abla by Melbourne Theatre Company. Second time in a little while that we've been into this most prestigious company's spaces. And this is an adaptation after Frederico Garcia Lorca by Patricia Cornelius. The program says, with their mining mogul father dead, the Abla household is in mourning. All four daughters have been called home by their matriarch mother to pay their respects and bunker down in the family home. The future seems wildly uncertain for all but the eldest sister who has inherited a fortune and is engaged to the local heartthrob. But as tensions rise and tempers flare, will any of them have the power to alter their destiny? So renowned playwright Patricia Cornelius takes Locher's classic tragedy out of the villages of Spain and into the heat of rural Western Australia to explore themes of passion, repression and isolation in an exhilarating adaptation directed by Leticia Casares. And indeed, it has a powerhouse cast, including Candy Bowers, Peter Brady, Julie Forsyth, Bessie Holland, Sue Jones, Emily Millage and Melita Jurisic, who stars as the fam- family matriarch. I wanted to read the names of those actors because... I hadn't known that the original version of this play is the first play, according to the program, written only for women actors. Yeah. So there's something really... A play with no men. That's right. Yeah. There's something really palpable about that gendered nature of the production. And one of the characters, in fact, it's the comic sort of maid figure, Penelope, who says, girls get feisty without men. (laughs) (laughs) And and the, the sense of male absence is is scrumptious here i mean one of them is dead another one of them is sort of prowling around the margins of the house and in fact his singlet his sort of empty item of clothing appears at one point in the in the play um but yeah you've got this sense of all right what's going to happen now when it's just us when it's just the sisters the mother and the maid oh sorry i had forgotten the grandmother who's locked up in some kind of outhouse <laughs> But locking up is what this is all about. So I'm fascinated by the fact that the original play had a kind of eight-year-long gothic horror component to it. You know, let's go into serious Deep lockdown. Deep Spanish Catholicism. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas this one, in something that I think matches the tone of this production, went for something a little more wry. Cornelius has updated the time frame to be, you know, Eight weeks. Yeah. Um, and that for these, you know, teenage sisters is just hell. You know, yeah. they, <laughs> mum insists that they're going to turn the internet off. So there is a modernization, a lightening of tone, and a different kind of imprisonment, something that becomes somehow more metaphorical and starts to offer a commentary about how prison might be the best way to imagine what life is like for all of these people, even when they leave the home, right? It's almost as if... Do you mean that the patriarchy is a prison for oh women, Philip? Oh, my Philip? God! <laughs> Revelation! 
<laughs> but in a way, I mean, it was symbolic here rather than literal. And yet uh, it was literal on, as well. You, thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, of course, of course. <laughs> but by symbolic, I, I mean that the the space actually looked like there was this oh, constant yes. self-enclosing. Yeah. You know, you could go to the front door and yet they would always come back from that door, uh, retreating and re-retreating and reburying themselves over and over again. What's your take? Gosh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. I think that this is like air quotes, an important work for the MTC to commission, Mm -hmm. particularly thinking of Patricia Cornelius to do it. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think she's brilliant Mm. and I think she's actually the best contemporary playwright we have in this country. And I just want her to be commissioned major works all the time. Mm. I found out about Patricia that she founded the Melbourne Workers Theatre. Okay. Back in the day. Okay. And she's also done a lot of work with Christos Chulkos and everything. So she's a Marxist, mm. which is why I love her. Mm. So, the, you know, I mean, it's quite obvious all of her work is about capitalism, a lot of it, uh, and the intersection of feminism, patriarchy uh, to capitalism. So I love her and I actually really love her writing skills. Her writing skills are absolutely phenomenal. And I look, honestly, I didn't particularly feel taken by this play in any way, shape or form, but I think she did an absolutely incredible modernisation of this text, particularly an Australianised version of this text. Yes. There's some hilarious dialogue in it. It's um, quite ochre, mm-hmm. but believable, and I think setting it in a mining town is actually quite poignant as well because there is the spectre of capitalism surrounding this as well. Um, An inheritance. An inheritance Mm. and men owning all the money, Mm. you know, and when you own all the money, you own all the women and you own everything surrounding it. And as soon as there's a rich woman, the men descend. Yes, the the carrion birds Mm. come to get what's there. That's right. I thought the set was brilliant. Mark Hall is just, she's absolutely fantastic. It sort of was like a... um, Almost like palettes, uh, sort of like, you know, like um, an outback house yeah. with the sun shining through those, getting that light through the, the palette gaps. But then also like this wonderful sculpture of like a chandelier of fly zappers <laughs> <laughs> and a wall full of um, uh, fans, air conditioners air and conditioners. fans. The, the set was wonderful. The performances were astounding. I'm just thinking about Candy Bowers and the fan. Oh, my God. Candy oh my Bowers. God. She is remarkable. Yeah. I, I've seen Candy in a lot of things, but this is really outside of her wheelhouse of mm-hmm. what she usually does. And mm. to see her as a dramatic com- comedic actor, she's phenomenal. And I loved the chorus like pairing of her with Bessie Holland. Yeah. As these <laughs> commentating sisters, <laughs> salaciously observing from the sidelines. So funny, so enjoyable. Yeah. So, like, I think on this show, a lot of value that we bring is that we're we're pretty newbie in terms of not really knowing a lot of the greats or, you know, m- maybe more obscure greats. Trust I Julian to send us to this, <laughs> his education. I haven't encountered Lorca's work before. I don't know anything about it. I don't know whether this I is a good adaptation or not. <laughs> But I think I think it's incredibly worthwhile. I'm really glad that the MTC programmed this. Yeah. And just as it was just thrilling to see six women on stage, all, you know, half of the cast were, you know, 
quite older women, you know, the other half of like, you know, varying sizes, Mm -hmm. fat women, Mm -hmm. brown women. That was thrilling to me. Yeah, yeah. One element of the adaptation into this West Australian space and one that Cornelius takes really seriously is the opportunity to think about Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians as visible and invisible on stage, off stage. This figure of Rosie, who is not one of the characters, but one of the figures around town, haunts this play in an intriguing way. I mean, she's the the woman that the men go to and seek out and essentially rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and her name and her body become metaphorical while remaining really true in the way that it's described by these different characters. Mm-hmm. And I thought that um, it was pleasing that Cornelius has done whatever it took to get that haunting Mm. uh, into the sort of bones of this production. And that's true skill because really it's taken this sort of gothic Spanish Catholic play about patriarchy Mm -hmm. and turns and has very deftly turned it into a parable or a metaphor for imperialism Mm -hmm. driven by men. Indeed. You know, and where that has entered Australia Mm -hmm. and that's what I think really makes it super contemporary. But then there's really really pointed dialogue about, say, Rosie, someone said where, or somebody says, where's she from? And the other person says, oh, it's too hard to pronounce. Wow. You know, and then we, you, you immediately get invocations of, you know, like the recent new train stations for Melbourne and people like, oh, put them as Aboriginal names and the uproar hmm. that it caused. So there was lots of little threads in there that really, really pinged my brain in a painful way. Yeah. yeah. And how fascinating that adaptation can do that. Yeah. But as you rightly hint, only when done by someone like Cornelius. Yeah. You know, she she's she's done something far beyond an update here. Yes. It's sort of a re-embedding. It's it's an update in terms of time but also place and not in a way that makes us all in Melbourne sort of mock West Australians either. You know, mm. this is a national story. Absolutely. That keeps resonating for us now as audiences of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Yeah. Mm. Um, you went to opening night. What was what was the crowd like? How did they respond to it? Out um, of curiosity. The first thing I overheard on the way out from behind me, so this person can now be anonymous opening night MTZ voice representative. <laughs> was that wasn't exactly a barrel of laughs, wasn't it? Oh, no, he said, that wasn't exactly a laugh a minute, was it? Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's what it was like. And that's, you know, <laughs> and and I keep referring to this as an important work because I think it really is. But at the same time, it's, you know, my criticism that I've had about a lot of the major institutions, it's like when they commission women's work, quote, unquote, it becomes, quote, unquote, women's work. So it's like depressing plays about people killing themselves because of rape or the patriarchy. Uh, Usually there's no older women on stage at all. So that's Mm -hmm. where this does have a lot of difference. You know, it has commissioned a lot of older women to be in. But still it's sort of like if I was put my, you know, regular MTC man hat punter on and be like, oh, well, you know, I don't like women's plays because they're, you know, all depressing. Okay. So, I don't know, like, I think this is an important step forward. And it gave, I mean, to go back to the mood on opening night, I think the mood was 
respect for performance. Yeah, good. Um, I think that people were responding really palpably to, in particular, the performance of Melita Jurisic as the oh matriarch. Gosh, she was unbelievable. Um, but the the sort of show-stopping opener from Julie Forsyth also really hit yeah. hit well. You know, got lots of laughs. Eating the sausage. Um, and the way she sort of swears. <laughs> you know, she, she opens it making... I think Cornelius wanted to just sort of put her signature on it from the start. I mean, this is mm. the woman who wrote shit, after yeah, right. all. Yeah. Um, and she just wanted to get all of the curse words in there to make it clear that this is not going to be a reverential play from another place in time. Sure. Mm, and that was effective and exciting. Yeah. Hold on to your wigs. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Juju, for sending us to this. Thank it gave you. me a lot to think about. Okay, coming soon. Come back, Jazz. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Can Jasmine, you right now. tell our listeners what to do? <laughs> well, um, as I'm often immersed in the ballet world, I thought True. I'd tell you what's happening. Good. Verve. Verve. Clicko. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can have verve with verve. Verve with verve. Yeah, but this is verve. You guys have missed a a marketing opportunity. Mm. (laughs) You can have that one for free. (laughs) I'll pop that in my pocket. Um, (laughs) What is verve? So it's it's a fabulous mixed bill. So... One of the things I love the most about seeing a triple bill, as we call it, mm. um, is that you get to see three distinct different works. And so it's a really interesting representation of what the Australian Ballet is doing because it's two works by our um, resident choreographers, Tim Harbour and Stephen Baines, and a commissioned work from a female choreographer, Whoa. Alice Top. Alice. Alice. Glass ceiling smashed. Mm. Well, it's interesting because you were talking about commissioning mm. women and I thought, mm. yeah, it's going to be fabulous. So um, Constant Variance by Stephen Baines, Filigree and Shadow by Tim Harbour and Aurum by Alice Top. And are they all really edgy, flighty, zappy sort of things? Well, it'll be interesting to know because some I've seen, some I've not Ooh. seen. Ooh. But it is, you know, contemporary. It mm. is something it's, um, you know, pushing the limits of ballet. It sounds like the kind of show that we should get along to. And yeah. by we, I mean the people listening to this podcast. Mm. It sounds like a nice way in yes. to something that can be a little bit exclusive seeming. Yeah. Or, you know, like you need training to be able to see it or whatever. Oh, you don't need that. Great. To even okay. have interest. Yeah. Okay. Triple well, bill. Gu- guaranteed you'll like one. Mm. You know? because, because that's the thing of what I found with us going to these contemporary works. The thing that I find most intriguing is you can really palpably feel how engaged and excited the performers are by the work. Mm. Because I imagine they spend a lot of their time doing the same kind of – they're like Shakespearean actors doing all the same <laughs> they love plays that, all the time. I'm sure you know? they love it, but <laughs> but it seems – it just sort of – I don't know, like their energy just feels like – off the charts with these new works. (laughs) (laughs) Are they conservative, the dancers, or are they, like, loving the contemporary stuff? Oh, they love – but it's it's like any group of artists, you know. There's 77 dancers in the company. Right. So it's it's very diverse, actually. Because I – no, but I reckon that classical musos are bored by classical audiences. That's what I'm hinting. And I'm wondering if dancers are the same. They're just like, catch up, stop liking Capalia. Oh, no. The thing is, you know, they're classical dancers. That's the core That's of... That's what they of, love. Yeah, oh, right. so, so... So they would be contemporary... They would be contemporary dancers oh, if they wanted to. Oh, because they've got to. that whole other category. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they, but they, they can do both, you know. Because <laughs> we've just done The Merry Widow. Oh, yeah. Um, which is, is, is wonderful in a, in a different way. But um, And then... 
this um, these three different works utilize different people, um, you know, different roles, different music. So sold. Come so, like, <laughs> from the twenty first of June. You mm-hmm. must come along. We're the huge fans of Slate Culture Gabfest, which most people are. And Dana Stevens on there is completely in love with this show, Bunheads. Have you seen it? <laughs> no, I haven't, but I'm familiar with the term Bunhead. Yeah. yeah. It's a colloquial. Maybe term. there you go. There's, there's a hot tip. Is it for a you, doco? Jess? Is it a doco or a it's, drama? I think it's like it's a I think it only lasted for one or two seasons mm-hmm. and it's a um you know, it's a fictionalization of being a a ballet dancer. Okay. Yeah. Good. But I, I can't – I think it's maybe children or mm. young, like younger girls mm. in a, a ballet school or something like that. I'm not Writing sure. Writing this down. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Core. I'm going to go and look at it. Yeah. Carla, do you have comings soon? Uh, Dark Mofo is coming soon, very soon. By the time this episode is released, I might actually be there. There's lots of really cool esoteric stuff happening at this one as is usual. But uh, I just want to – you're just spruik. making us I was going to spruik a few things, but I don't think there's any point. If you go into Dark Mofo and have see fun, me, say hi. Have fun. <laughs> My little thing to get people um, to see before it wraps is Terry Nullius, the soda jerk film, the 55-minute film screening at Acme. I finally got along and it's still there for a little while every hour. So if you're in Fed Square and it's almost o'clock, uh, go and see it. It's, it's, it's actually very moving. Hold um, up. It's actually at... Vivid Festival right oh, now well. in Sydney as well. Oh, really? Okay. And it's going to be playing at Dark Mofo. Okay, so. chances to see it. Very but, high. And, and that's it, the thing that surprised me was that it is, um, especially for lovers of Australian cinema, moving. I'm excited by that. Mm. It, yeah. it is thrilling. Mm. I, you know, I'm not very into video art. I don't know why. It's just not a thing I'm oh, really? into. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, Jesse, my other co-host from Club Soda Burke, who's a video <laughs> artist. But this was like, yeah, it really... I don't know. It's it's what we've talked about before with gay stuff. It's like, are we so thirsty for Australian content that we just get instant nostalgia juice from anything that kind of sews anything from our childhood together? But it is. It's very. It's very wry. It's very vicious. And has gay stuff. Has gay stuff. <laughs> it's very funny to me. It really encapsulates. I keep talking about ochreism on the show, but to me that really encapsulates that Paul Keating style of knife sharp satire and cynicism and i love that they have the prime ministers as the way of running the credits yes yeah 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 of where the film credits come from yeah cool that's awesome thanks for coming on our show jazz thank you thank you for having me across the aisle (laughs) (laughs) and that is that for this month thank you so much for listening you can contact us please at us at acrossisle.com on our Facebook page, Across Isle, or on Twitter at Across Isle. Thank you, Mark Barrage and Ron Colleen from Shack West for this sweet sound. And thank you, as always, to the performers who are making the art that we value so dearly. Without you, we'd lock ourselves up in the art house. <laughs> Thanks again for listening and for supporting our campaign. Go to our site and click on the link and save your tax dollars. See you next month. Bye.